How's it going? That's so good. Who, who would say, show of hands maybe, maybe show of noise, who's just pumped to be here tonight? I'll be honest, I, was, I had like a whole bit written here about how no one was going to say, any, say anything. So, I don't know, who, who would say maybe there's kind of like, eh, anybody? Anybody's kind of like, eh, I'm here. That's fair. And you are here. It's good enough for me. I'm glad you're here. So, if you've been following along with us, Grace was just talking about it. We've been walking through the various signs that Jesus performs in the book of John. And if you haven't caught on yet, we've been mentioning it pretty consistently. The miracles that Jesus performs in and of themselves, they're not really the point of the story. I don't know if you guys have caught on to that yet. Like last week, the point wasn't that Jesus healed the Roman son. The point was what it revealed about Jesus, that he did heal the Roman son. Does it make sense? You tracking with me? Yes, it makes sense. It's good. Clear as mud. So tonight, we're, we're doing the same thing. We're looking at another sign. We're looking at another healing. But again, the healing in and of itself is not the point. It's, it's, it's not the main point. It's what it is revealing about Jesus that matters. And what we're going to see is that our passage tonight sort of confronts us with the, with the question. A question of where are you putting your hope? That's sort of the primary question for the evening. And we're going to continue to come back to where are you putting your hope? And hope is kind of this interesting thing because depending on the situation, what you can and what you should have your hope in kind of, kind of varies. Like right now, you're, you're trusting in your chair. You're hoping in your chair that it's going to keep you upright. And Lord willing, it will all evening, right? We're going to make it. Another example, maybe, uh, for my ladies in the room, some of you guys put your hope in a pair of Ugg boots, maybe in middle school, that like that was what was going to do, do it for you. That was going to make you popular. It was going to show the other girls that your parents were more rich than theirs because they were pretty expensive. And you, oh, you were finally going to do it. You were going to be the it girl. Gosh. Bailey gave me that example. If, she, if you feel like that's targeting you, call her out, all right? It's, it's all her, not me. My dudes, you thought I was going to leave you alone. I'm not. Some of you guys, you're putting your hope in like BCAAs and like other fad workout scams that are doing nothing for you. You're not getting any bigger. You need to be hitting your protein macros. That's what you need to be doing, all right? That, I did come up with that example. If, if we have beef now, it's cool. Let's talk about it later. I'm just, just up here being honest. Anyway, my point is we've all put our hope in some pretty stupid places. And it's, that, that's usually fine. It's usually not a big deal. And it's, it's even funny to look back on up until we're faced with a passage like tonight that points out maybe I'm still putting my hope in places that I can't depend on. See, we, we put our hope in our relationships because it shows that we're wanted and desirable. And we put our hope in our grades to give us this, this sense of security and getting a, a well-paying job. And we put our hope in our, our physical appearance because, you know, maybe if I'm attractive, then I'm worth something. And ultimately, the place we put our hope for the things that truly matter, it says a lot about our faith or the lack thereof. And so tonight, we're going to look at two examples Two different people, two different groups of people putting their 
hope everywhere, every place they can, but for where they should be. And kind of my goal for this evening is that in looking at these two examples, my hope is that you'll ask yourself, what am I putting my hope in? What are you putting your hope in? So let's dive in. Let's get into it. John chapter 5. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3. All right, here we go. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's it. That's all we got. Okay. So we're picking up right after where we left off last week. So actually, if you remember the last two weeks, all right, the first time, Jesus is in Cana. He's at uh, like a wedding celebration. He turns water into wine. All right. He leaves. He comes back to Cana. This is last week, I think. He heals the Roman son. Now he's left Cana. And he's in Jerusalem. And it's like a 67-mile trek each way. I think we got a graphic. Boom. So if you look... It's super small. you got to look really close. Right under Galilee, diagonally to the right, right underneath it. That's Cana. And if you look at Jerusalem, it's two up diagonally from Judea. All right, yeah. So that's like, that's essentially the trek Jesus is making. He comes to this pool called Bethesda in Aramaic. It's essentially just one of the three languages the Bible was written in. And I think it's easy for us to just, you know, hear places like this and not have a sense of geographical awareness, and so it doesn't really seem real. It doesn't compute because it's like watching a movie. It's like, okay, they're in Wakanda. Okay, I think it's in Africa, but I'm like, is it real? No, it's not. But Cana is a real place. Jerusalem, real place. The the pool we're stepping into, we're looking at tonight, is a real place. And I say that with confidence because they found it. Right? Digging up underneath Jerusalem, they found the place, and it's ex- it looks exactly like how it was described in this book. I think we have another picture. Yeah. See, there's four colonnades right there, and the middle one is the fifth. There's an upper pool and a lower pool. It's exactly how it was described in the text. And actually, what's interesting is there's a church built on top of that now that has, you know, it doesn't matter. There's a church on top of it. Just leave it at that. Point being, this isn't like a fantastical story made up about some people at some random place. This is a real event with real people at a real place that really happened. That's what we're stepping into tonight. And what's interesting in the context is at the time, people in Jerusalem believed that God would send an angel to stir up the pool. And I guess it would make it bubble. Not super clear in the text. But the first person that would get into the pool once the waters were a bubbling, they'd be healed. I don't know why I said it like that. Once the waters were stirred up, the first person in there would be healed. And like looking into the historical context of it, we don't really know if that's true. Maybe. Maybe that happened once. Maybe, maybe it didn't. You know, there's like a bunch of different theories on it. But before we go on, we need to acknowledge something. If you look at your Bible... Depending on your translation, verse 4 is probably missing. It's interesting. I didn't, know this. I didn't know this until I was reading through it. 
So the reason verse 4 is missing in some of your text, if you have the ESV version, it's definitely missing for you, is because the, the fourth verse was not, is not in the earliest manuscripts that we have of this gospel. What that means is it was probably added somewhere between the first and second century by a translator into the margin for the purpose of adding context. Now it begs the question, like, well, how does this change the story? No, it doesn't. It doesn't change the story because it's only adding context. It's further explaining what we're reading. All that was just a side note. Just wanted to acknowledge it. But point being, it doesn't take away from the validity of the text. All right? Cool. Let's keep going. Uh, chapter, no, chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. Reads this. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be saved? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Recap. So basically, Jesus walks into this pool area, and he sees this paralyzed guy from the waist down. That's what being an invalid means, and he asks him, sort of this the one question you probably wouldn't ask someone who has some sort of like, you know, physical ailment or deformity, do you want to be healed? It's, it's, it's an absurd question. It doesn't make sense to ask, and it's borderline offensive at the very best. But that's what he says. Jesus walks into this pool area, he sees him, and he asks him, do you want to be healed? And so just to bring it to our context, just imagine with me for a second. You grew up, and you were super good at, like, soccer or football or any, any sport that requires legs. And something happened along the way. Injury, illness, something, fill in the blank. And all of a sudden, you were paralyzed from the waist down. You couldn't, you couldn't walk anymore. And so just in that moment... In the moment of the injury, the illness, your dreams, your aspirations of maybe playing in high school, playing the sport in high school, or playing college, or maybe making it to, you know, like the major leagues for whatever sport that is, they're gone. Like instantly, they're gone. But not only that, your whole identity has changed in that moment because you used to be someone who was, you know, active, athletic, someone who could walk. And that's, that's immediately Changed Your sense of identity has changed. And this is the reality that we're stepping into with this paralyzed man. All of his dreams of having, having a family, having a wife, having a job were shattered because he couldn't walk. And he was fully reliant on others to, to get him from place to place. And matter of fact, he was fully reliant on other people to hold him up so he could go to the bathroom. Otherwise, he just had to do it on himself. That's this guy's situation. And, and maybe worst of all, as if just losing all sense of, of purpose wasn't enough. His, his sense of identity, identity is stripped away. Because even as a Jew, as an ethnic and religious Jew, he could no longer enter the temple. He could no longer go into the place where he could worship God because he was unclean. This was his reality for almost 40 years. 
And so I just wonder, can you start to see the desperation that he might have? You start to see the desperation, and then, and then one day, he's been sitting there for 30-something years, just another day. It's like every other day, but some guy walks up to him, and he's just, do you want to be healed? Do, do you want to be healed? Like, how, how do you respond to that? How would you respond to that in that moment? Because, of course, he wants to be healed, like, obviously, he wants to be healed. Who wouldn't want to be healed, right? That's why he's living next to the pool so that he can get into the water, so that someone can get him into the waters when they bubble up and he can get his life back. That's why he's there. The answer is obviously yes. That's not what he says. If you look, verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So after years of waiting next to this pool, being trampled, being stepped over, being kicked, probably begging God to help him get into the pool, the man, he's entirely lost hope. Like if he, if he could just get into the pool, if these, these selfish people would just get him into the pool then he could be healed, right? This, his hope's gone. This has been his reality for the last 38 years. He can't even say yes to Jesus when Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. The one place he was sure that he would find healing has let him down. And this guy's so lost, he's so desperate, he's so cemented in putting his hope of healing in this pool, he can't even see the person with the power to heal him. The person standing right in front of him. And Salt Company, this is our story too. This is us. Some of you in this room, you're so fixated on looking for healing, looking for, for purpose, for significance, for worth, in every place but where you're going to find it. Guys, getting, getting that guy, getting that girl won't convince you of your worth. People liking you won't make you like yourself. Getting that big paycheck won't satisfy your greed. Hiding your sin, hoping that you'll work through it yourself won't make it go away. When your hope is not in Jesus, it will always eventually result in hopelessness. Your relationship status, your, your, your money, your, your false holiness will not heal you from your self-hatred and discontent. There's no healing to be found there. It's only found in Jesus. And if you aren't a Christian here tonight, I would just ask you the question, what are you hoping in? When the reality that the world we're living in is awful and dark and broken, and when that hits you, where do you, what do you put your hope in? Where do you put your hope? When the foundation that you've built up around you to keep yourself secure and standing, when it crumbles and you fall on your face, where do you put your hope? Because you can look at the pool. You can, you can live next to the pool for as long as you want. You can look to social approval for future success, academic performance, whatever you want. You can look to all these things to find what it is you're searching for, but until you look to Jesus, you will not find it. 
The problem with putting your hope in all of these pools, whatever they are, is that none of them are permanent, and therefore none of them are able to sustain the pressure of placing your hope in them. And for the Christians, we can't miss this either because this isn't just everyone else's story. This is ours too, myself included. This is still our story. We do the same things. Even despite knowing where our hope belongs, we place it in the same pools of popularity or success or or whatever it is. And so many of us just kind of slap this sticker of like, oh, I trust Jesus. We just kind of slap that on things when, when they get hard, while in reality, what we really believe, at least functionally, is, oh, I believe in Jesus up until things get hard or scary or they don't go how I planned them. Then we're right back to putting our hope in these other places. We so easily forget where our hope comes from. And even in the way that we respond to our sin and our shame, we act like these areas of our life where we still need healing, where we still need sanctification or outside of God's control and power. And so we hide our, we hide our sin and we just kind of white knuckle it thinking that we're going to get through it on our own, that we're going to just work through our sins on our own. As if there's healing to be found anywhere besides the source of your salvation. As if there's a chance in heaven that we could hope to conquer our sin on our own. Christians, stop putting your hope in yourself. You weren't enough to save yourself. And you're not enough to sustain yourself now. It hasn't changed. But the thing is, you don't have to be enough because Jesus is. Jesus is not just the hope of salvation, which he is that, but he is our hope still today. Our hope in him is rooted in the truth that he is working all things together for the good of those who loved him, who love him like he promised in Romans 8.28. That's the truth. That's who Jesus is Is this Jesus who was faithful to heal you initially and he will continue to be faithful and heal you as you walk with him? He hasn't left you just because he brought you into salvation. He's still sustaining you and continuing to heal you along the way. In Salt Company, there's no healing in the pool. And Whatever that pool is for you, you can fill in that blank. There's no healing there. And that's okay. You don't need that pool because there's something far better. There's someone far better. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's asking you the same question he was asking the invalid. Do you want to be healed? So whatever you're holding on to, whatever you've kept locked up inside, whatever you're hiding whatever you're struggling with, would you just give it to him? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior who died in our place, is our only hope. And he's gracious to forgive us our sins, including the hidden ones, and he's loving enough to show us our need for him. There's no hope in any other place, any other name, anywhere else besides Jesus. And if you're asking why, which is a fair question. If you're asking why, it's because by his death and resurrection, there's a fly up here. By his death and resurrection, he offers us a relationship with him through faith. 
And not only that, but he guarantees us eternal life where every disease, every hurt, every tear will be wiped away. And we will get to worship in full peace in the full presence of our God. So do you want healing? Do you want peace? Do you want salvation? You gotta look to your only hope. And his name's Jesus. And so in the last part of this section, notice how Jesus responds to the man. We can't miss this. Jesus, he doesn't argue with him. Or even, he doesn't even correct him. He doesn't wait for this guy to understand who it is that's asking him if he wants to be healed. He just says, stand up, take up your mat and walk. Guys, action follows healing. Action follows salvation. And essentially what Jesus is saying to this man is, pack your things, you're not coming back. But don't miss the significance of what the man is doing, of him taking his mat with him. This mat represents everything he would like to forget. It's disgusting. He's been laying there for years. It's covered in his own sweat and feces. Why would he take it with him but as for evidence of what God has done for him? This filthy mat, just this disgusting thing, is this man's testimony of how God has healed him. And this is the takeaway. As you were brought into salvation... Stand up. Take your story with you as a testimony of God's goodness and, and walk. And to be specific, this looks like being vulnerable with your city group, especially about the hard stuff, especially about the stuff you'd like to forget. Because that's the power of your testimony. It's in the things that God has brought you to. It doesn't matter where you're at right now. He's going to continue to sustain you. And there's this quote I really like it. It's by this guy named John Newton. He's just an old English evangelist. He says this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Guys, our hope is not in what we can do on our own, but in what God has done for us. So would you encourage those around you by taking your mat, taking your story, and just presenting it, saying, hey, look what God's brought me through. Look how he's changed me. Look how he's picked me up. That's our takeaway here. Carry your mat with you. And so Jesus, he, he heals the invalid at the pool. But it, that's kind of our point. The story's not over. He continues. Because again, the miracle isn't the main focus. Its purpose is to reveal a truth about Jesus. So let's keep going. We're going to get back into it. John 5, 10 through 17. So the Jews said to the man, nope, I'll go back a little bit. Now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed or your mat. 
But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he, had, he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And so get this, get this. So as soon as this guy is healed, dude hasn't been walking in 38 years. As soon as he's healed, he leaves this pool area, and the Pharisees immediately confront him. In, in almost this comical way, and they're not confronting him because, oh my gosh, there's been a miracle. This guy's healed. But because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And essentially, the Sabbath is just the seventh day of the week where we are called to intentionally acknowledge that we are reliant on God. It's an intentional day of rest and response to God, focusing on Him. That's all it is. But the Pharisees, they're, they're sort of this, you know, religiously elite group. In order to make sure that all of the Jews followed this law, that was kind of their role. They're, they were making sure that everyone followed this, God, this law given by God in the Ten Commandments at Sinai. It's in the book of Exodus if you want to check it out. They added their own laws on top of this. They added their own laws on top of the ones that God had given them. And kind of the purpose of this was to make sure that no one even got close to the ones God had laid out. Which makes sense, you know, like, Logically, that tracks. But the problem was their interpretations of the laws were flawed. And, it, and because of this, the laws that they made, they led to all these ridiculous rules about one, what one could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And so, for example, uh, a more, more modern example, in, in the 90s, I think it was in 92, there was an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem. And a fire started one day on the Sabbath, and the, the Jewish guy asked the rabbi, hey, is it lawful for me to call the fire department? It's a true story. And the rabbi goes, no. That's the Sabbath. Don't do that. So they let their neighborhood burn down. It's charred. Home's gone, but they honored the Sabbath. Praise God. Exactly. It's absurd. It's absurd. It doesn't make sense, but this is the thing. The Sabbath was never about not making phone calls or how many steps you could take or how, what things you could not couldn't carry. Those were also laws that were put into place. But it was about delighting in and enjoying God on a day of intentional rest. This man wasn't breaking God's law. Neither was Jesus. They were breaking the Pharisees' law. And by implementing and following these extra self-imposed rules, the Pharisees were showing that their hope was no longer in God and honoring him. Their hope was in their own morality. They, just like the previously crippled man, had placed their hope in something besides the one who was worthy of their hope. Their, their pool wasn't one of healing. Their pool was one of religiosity. And in making these laws, in following their own morality, they were failing to see the miracle that had just taken place. They didn't even care. They didn't even care to be introduced to the guy who had just healed this man. They wanted to find the culprit of who had broken their Sabbath day laws. 
picture this. So you're walking, I don't know, you're in the old market maybe, and you're walking down, and you're kind of just walking, and you see out of the corner of your eye, just a little kid, maybe a toddler, just walking in the middle of the road. And you kind of look a little bit more to your right, and big old truck just barreling down this hill. 18-wheeler. This kid's got no shot. So what do you do? You're all heroes here. You're all phenomenal people, super athletic. You just, you drop yourself, boom, you take off after him. Scoop him up, land in the grass. It's like slow motion. There's fire and music going on in the background. He's safe. You did it. Everyone's clapping. It's awesome. You're going to get the key to the city. But then instead of the mayor giving you this big old key for your wall, police officer comes up, excuse me, sir, ma'am. You were jaywalking. That's going to be a fine. That's what's happening here. Jesus has just healed a guy who's been laying on the ground for the past however long, and the Pharisees are upset because of the day he did it. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Their hope's in the wrong place. Salt Company, this passage is urging you to see that there is no hope to be found in your own righteousness. You could be the most squeaky clean person. Like your record could be like, man, I've only sinned once in my life. It doesn't matter. You're not good enough. The the standard of getting into heaven is perfection. And you're not perfect. You could be the most righteous Pharisee out there. It doesn't matter. You're not perfect. You don't measure up. We've all sinned. The Bible says we've all fallen short of the glory of God as well. So when we put our hope in our own morality, our own works like the Pharisees, we miss the one who's performing the miracles around us. We fail to see it because we're too busy focusing on ourselves. We miss it. But another key thing we can't miss in this text is what Jesus says to the healed guy when he sees him next at the temple, and especially what happens after. It says this, verses 14 through 17. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went out, or excuse me, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. He says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's not a phrase, and essentially kind of bring it into our own modern context, Jesus is saying, look, I've healed you forever. You're never going back to this place. So now, stop sinning because something worse will happen to you if you don't. And let me be clear, Jesus isn't, he's not threatening this guy. That's not, that's not what's happening. It's not Jesus' heart, but he is warning him. He's making it clear that in some way, this guy's sinful choices in the past led to him being paralyzed. We're not given, you know, the full story. We don't know what happened, but we know that it was a result of his sin. 
But again, an important distinction. This isn't to say that God made this guy paralyzed because he sinned. Important distinction. What Jesus is saying is that his paralysis is a direct result of his own decisions. We can never assume that someone who's sick or disabled is, is being punished by God. That's not the case. But as is the point of what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand that the consequences of sin are worse than paralysis. Like, just imagine the worst disease, the worst injury or disability that you can think of. Sin is worse than that. The consequences of sin are worse than this. The scriptures make it clear that by sinning against a just and holy God, we have earned death. And not only death, but we've earned eternal separation away from God because this is what we deserve by sinning against him. And apart from putting our hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is what we will get. We will get what we're owed. But by the grace of God, he sent his son to die for you and for me, and he's invited us into this eternal family. We've been given a place to put our hope a place that won't crumble, a place that won't end. In a person who is altogether worthy of our worship, we have been given a place to put our hope that will not fail us. And as we, as we close this evening, I, I want us to see this last thing that Jesus says in our passage. Just tune back in real, real quick with me if you haven't been paying attention. Jesus is approached by the Pharisees. He's confronted by them for having someone, quote-unquote, work on the Sabbath. And his response to them is super straightforward. My father is working until now, and I am working. Which, if you break it down, he's quite literally saying, God is working today, and so is his son. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he is God. He's saying, God's working today, and I am too. Because we're the same. We are one. My father is working, and so is his son. He's, he's telling them up front, what more could they need to see? Because they, they know about the miracle. They've talked to the guy that was healed, and now, and now he's, he's telling them plainly that he is God, the Son. And they, they've seen the evidence. They have every reason to believe that this is true, but they can't see him for who he is. They're blinded because of their hope in themselves. And because of this, they're opposed to what God is doing. They can't, they can't see it. And this, the question I have for you, Salt Company, is, is the same true for you? Where is your hope? Are you the paralytic who's, who's hoping to find healing everywhere but for in Jesus? Or are you the Pharisees who are hoping in your own good works to please God? We can, we can put ourselves in both people's shoes. Jesus has revealed himself as God to us. No one has an excuse. It's plainly written. It can be plainly seen. Jesus is the Son of God. He's shown us this. And so whether you identify with the paralytic or the Pharisees, he's asking you this evening, do you want to be healed? So what will your response be? Guys, my prayer is that you would respond by, one, placing your hope in Jesus, 
not in the things around you. And two, that you would respond by standing up, picking up your mat, taking your sin and your shame and your mess and everything that God has brought you out of and using that as a powerful testimony of who God is. Your, your testimony is powerful. Would you stop hiding the things that are hurting you? Would you stop hiding the things that you've done? Because God is he's, he's faithful to bring you out of them. And he'll be faithful to walk with you as you continue to make a mess along the way. Picking it up right after you. Would you take up your mat and walk? Let's pray. Lord, would this, this be true for us? Lord, would we, would we stop looking inward and outward and everywhere but where we can find hope and would we finally fix our eyes firmly on you, the author and perfecter of our faith? Lord, you're good. You, you've given us hope. That this, this life isn't it. That we're not the sum of our sin. That there's more to us than mess and mistakes. So Lord, would we believe that this evening? Would we see you in your glory? Would we see you for all that you are in your majesty and splendor? And would we just put our hope in you? Amen.